invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. And if you're using your Bibles in the benches, that can be found on page 1,634. 1634, Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. As we continue along in our series through Luke's Gospel, we'll be reading through chapter 21, verse 4 this morning. You'll remember that Jesus is in the temple. This is God's holy word. Some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. And finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive." Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. But no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say that Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. And as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last week we saw that the Sanhedrin, which is the highest religious political ruling body in Israel, had decided that it was either going to be them or Jesus. Right? 
I mean, they had humored Jesus and his growing number of followers long enough. And it wasn't that strange in Israel for these sectarian groups, as they saw it, to sprout up all over the place from time to time. But after a while, they would wither away and die. And they were never a serious threat to the Pharisees and the Sadducees that composed the Sanhedrin. But this threat of Jesus and his followers and the kinds of things that he was saying that they could not answer was not going to go away by itself. And they had decided, especially because he had the audacity to march in the temple and put an end to their money-making racket, manipulating the sacrificial system and people's good intentions to worship the Lord. He had the audacity to come in there and to publicly put them to shame. They are not going to let this continue. So we saw the Sanhedrin last week fire their first shot, didn't they? The Pharisees came, right? They tried to capitalize on the lack of clarity that Jesus' own followers had about his identity. And so they came to Jesus, a delegation from the Sanhedrin, Pharisees, to publicly discredit his authority or to try to do so in the eyes of his followers. But Jesus saw right through that, didn't he? That didn't work. Jesus told them, look... Everybody knows that John is a prophet. Everybody has accepted that. And John pointed to me. And if you accept John, as everybody does, then you will accept me. And the Pharisees, again, loving the accolades of the people, were not about to challenge the premise that John was a prophet. And so Jesus shut their mouths, right? Then they tried to Get them a different way, right? They pose a question to Jesus that if he answers in one way, it makes him look like a blasphemer to the Jews. And if he answers it a different way, he looks like a a rebel against the Roman government. And he'll rouse the anger, the ire of the Roman government against him. Try to tease him with the tax money. You know, if you don't pay the tax, Jesus, if you don't give Caesar what he requires, then he's going to come after you. But you know, if you pay the tax, Jesus... You're sort of succumbing to that ungodly worldview that thinks that the Roman emperors share in divinity and the picture of the emperor's mother on the back claiming that she's a goddess. Which one are you going to do? And what does he say? The Lord is the Lord. Caesar is not him, but gives Caesar his dumb tax money if he wants it. He confounds them. They cannot kill him. He will die on his own time. But the Sanhedrin was not only composed, obviously, of the Pharisees, it also included the Sadducees. And the picture you get by reading our story this morning is that they had been in council in the Sanhedrin. Remember we said that the delegation that came to Jesus last week originally was probably an official delegation. That is, the Sanhedrin was meeting, maybe even if it was just in a subcommittee, right? They were meeting, how are we going to solve this Jesus problem? How are we going to discredit him? And you can see the Sadducees, who were in the minority if you compare them to the Pharisees. The Sadducees are saying, alright Pharisees, you go ahead and have your shot, and we'll see how it turns out. And the Pharisees failed miserably, as we've seen. So the Sadducees step up to the plate to solve the Jesus problem. And what they do in this story, now I want you to catch the very sarcastic tone of the so-called question that the, the Sadducees are posing to Jesus. What they are trying to do here is to publicly humiliate Jesus and show the futility 
of his beliefs. I mean, what's ironic here is that the Sadducees disagree doctrinally with the Pharisees on a number of important points. But, so in many ways, they're at odds all of the time. They're always wrestling for religious and political power. But they will unite together against Jesus. They will set aside their differences to go after Christ because He's a threat to the whole establishment. The the Sadducees and the Pharisees can get along so long as they can continue to oppress people and have the power and the fame that they desire. But Jesus, of course, is a threat to all of that. And so they will unite against Him even though they are always at odds of themselves. So here come the Sadducees. And you notice in verse 27 the most significant difference between what the Sadducees believe and what the Pharisees believe for the purpose of our story this morning. It says that the Sadducees believe there is no, or they say, there is no resurrection. And that's very true of them. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. Now the Pharisees did, right? And obviously Jesus did. He talks about it many times. He's going around doing healings. He's raising people from the dead, actually, pointing forward to the resurrection that is coming. But the Sadducees deny that. They deny the immortality of the soul. And so this was the main doctrinal point of contention. And what the Sadducees are so sure of, just like they're always sure when they argue with the Pharisees about the fact that there is no resurrection, that they prove to the Pharisees that there is one. And nobody can really answer them, you know, because they've figured it all out. And so they come to Jesus in public, ready to show everyone how foolish he is. They will ask him the question that likely no Pharisee who believes in the resurrection has ever been able to answer. They are going to prove by this question that there is no resurrection. What is the question? Well, we already read it. Verse 28. Man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children. And according to the Mosaic Law, then a brother of the man who died would marry the wife in order that the line would continue. And on and on it goes for seven brothers, but there are no children, and they're all dead, including the woman. Now the reason it's important to understand that there were no children born by any of these men with this woman in this story is because none of the men in this so-called resurrection the Sadducees are saying could claim that they are the real legitimate husband because they actually had the son right or a daughter so all of these men are on equal terms who are they going to be married to in the resurrection now what's the problem why is this question a problem why are the Sadducees so convinced that this will force Jesus to admit that there is no resurrection Well, it's because there is no place in the Old Testament law where God allows a woman to be married to multiple husbands. Right? So really, if there is a resurrection, then obviously this woman is going to have to be married to somebody. She's been married seven times to these men. Which one is she going to be married to? It's an impossible answer and it proves that there just can't be a resurrection. Because if there's a resurrection, then that's making God break His own law. Having a woman married to more than one man. Which we all know as good Jews is an abomination to the Lord. You see, Jesus? There's the proof. There's no resurrection. God will not break His own law, will He? And Jesus responds in a couple of ways. 
the first way, in spite of maybe outward appearances, is, is kind of tricky. It's complex. And one of the reasons I say that is a lot of the biblical manuscripts that reflect what Jesus said in the temple when he was arguing with the Sadducees are themselves in conflict on the words that he actually used. I mean, more so than is typical for these ancient documents. There are all kinds of competing statements, in a sense, that Jesus is making. Now, they're all basically saying the same thing, but exactly how Jesus is making the argument is not so clear. Let me tell you what I'm saying. Look in verse 34, Jesus' answer. He says, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, right there we have a problem. The people of this age, and he's talking about the age in which we live, the age of his time, before the great resurrection, which is in the future, says the people of this age right now marry and are given in marriage. The text, what Jesus probably actually said, and it's hard for us to be certain, again because some of the manuscripts conflict, what he probably said was the people of this age are born and reproduce. And the reference to marriage makes sense, obviously, in some of the transcripts, because procreation is associated with marriage, right? So I would read verse 34 this way. Jesus replied, The people of this age born and are reproduced. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, that's the resurrection, in the resurrection from the dead, will not be born nor be reproducing. Right, like unto the way in which people are born today and reproduce today. Why? They can no longer even die. For they are like the angels. Read verse 36 that way. They can no longer even die. Meaning they cannot be born in the same way that people are born today. They cannot reproduce in the same way people reproduce today. And they cannot die like people die today in this age. Because they are sons of the resurrection. The source of their life in the resurrection is not a human birth, right? It's the glorious resurrection power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And people will not be married in order to procreate in the age of the resurrection because humanity will have been recompleted. Jesus is basically saying this, the quality of relationship that people have in the resurrection age is different from the quality of relationship that they have now. Now some people will take this passage and say that very clearly that means that people will not be married at all in heaven. And just providentially, I've been having discussions with different people I think over the past months in the church about this sort of difficult idea. What do we really believe about that? And husbands and wives thinking as close as we are in our relationship now, are we going to be married in heaven? And if not, like, that's weird. Right? Some people will say, and it's an acceptable view, isn't it, that Jesus is teaching that there will be no more marital relationship between husband and wife in heaven. That that will be abolished. I don't think, especially because of 
the difficulty in the wording and the disagreement among the manuscripts that we have to take that position dogmatically. I believe the point is that however our marital relationships on earth would reflect in the age of the resurrection and the glorious new heavens and the new earth, clearly the relationship is different, right? There will be no more procreation. There will be a heightening of unity in the Lord Jesus Christ among all of His people. We will not be born and grow in the same way that we have done now. We will not die in the same way that we die in this age. Jesus is basically saying, your question is ridiculous because the type of life that you have in the resurrection is much more glorious and is just different from the life that you have in this age. So your question doesn't make any sense, he tells the Sadducees. I mean, you're talking about an age where people are immortal and glorified, and you're asking about these old institutions of marriage. I mean, however people are going to be related as married couples on earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, things are going to be very different. So you can't apply these technicalities of the Old Testament law, which are addressing specific situations in our old fleshly age, uh, to that question. And he refutes them in that way. He says another thing, which is a little more clear. He says in uh, verse 37 there, in the account of the bush, that's the burning bush, you remember that? Moses, the Old Testament prophet, proved that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. And basically what Jesus is saying is this. When you read that story of the burning bush, and Moses declares God to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know that he will raise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the dead. Because God has made a promise to be their God. And when He promises to be your God, that means you will live unto Him. And He will live unto you forever. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's pretty cavalier exegesis. That's a pretty strange way of reading that passage, Jesus. But, you know, it's a good idea to listen to the one who wrote the Scripture by the power of His Holy Spirit, right? To interpret... uh, Or to bring out of that text a good understanding. When God says that He is your God, that means that He will raise you. When God made a covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and said that He would be their God and they would be His people, if He does not raise them from the dead, if He leaves them forgotten in the grave, then God is a liar. That's what Jesus is saying. And because you know God will never break His covenant promises, then we know that He will raise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and bless them and He will bless us in the same way. You think about that. You think about it when you say that you believe in God the Father Almighty. If you believe that He is your God, then you believe that He will raise you from the dead. What are you saying, Sadducees? Jesus is saying that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are going to be left, gone, and dead forever? Then you're calling God a liar. So shut your mouth. Now, how do the Pharisees 
respond to that. Look at verse 39. I mean, they're happy to hear Jesus refute them. Right? All... They're happy to hear Jesus refute them. Well said, some of the teachers of the law responded. Well said. Oh, they're so happy. Because you know the Sadducees had probably teased them about their inability to trap Jesus. And they get some sick satisfaction in the fact that the Sadducees can't get him either. Even though they'd rather have him overthrown. But the point is that in all of these traps, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. No one dared to ask him any more questions. They can't. Like we said last week, they can't kill him. They can try to discredit his authority to his followers. They can try and get him in trouble with the mass of Jews for blasphemy. They can try and get him in trouble with the Roman government. That's fine. They can try and discredit him theologically so that people will turn against him. And nothing works. Nothing works because he will die on his own time. And it's interesting. You know, at times, right, he didn't press his claims about who he was because it wasn't yet his time to die. But we're seeing the progression in Luke's Gospel, aren't we? That he has now come into Jerusalem and he he knows the reason he's coming into Jerusalem is to die. And so sometimes he'll back off so that the timing is right. But sometimes he'll press his claims in order to exacerbate the tension and also to preach the Gospel to those who will be listening. And that's what he does right now in the temple. I mean, in one sense, he's gone on the defensive, but as he did last week, he also goes on the attack. Because the time is coming nearer when he will voluntarily and willfully give himself over to be crucified. That's what he's doing in verses 41 there and following. He's making his messianic claim. How is it, Jesus says, that they say that Christ is the son of David, but David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? All right, here's the question he's asking. He's basically saying in Psalm 110, it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand. And everybody knows that David wrote the psalm. So David is calling two people Lord in the psalm. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, The first Lord is Yahweh, God the Father. But Yahweh is speaking to somebody else who David calls my Lord. And the Jews at the times, certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees, understood that second Lord, not God the Father, but the one to whom God the Father is speaking, understood that Lord to be the Messiah, Christ, whoever that would be when He came. So Yahweh says to the Messiah, Sit thou at my right hand. Now, they also believed, the Pharisees and the Sadducees at that time, they also believed that the Messiah, that Lord would be the son of David. So how is it possible that the Messiah could be the Lord of David if he's also David's son? Now, again, this is a passage which people have interpreted in many ways. But using the context... I think it's probable that what Jesus is talking about here is that if the Messiah is supposed to come from David's loins, then David will be dead 
And so the Messiah could not really be the Lord of David unless what? There's resurrection. And actually Psalm 110 is quoted in the New Testament, isn't it, about Jesus? That when the Lord brings him up out of the grave and he sets him on his heavenly throne, that that is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. That the eternal God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became man, humbled himself, fulfilled the messianic office and was raised to messianic kingship and even now he sits at the right hand of God. The only way it's possible, Jesus is saying to them, for David to call somebody my Lord who is going to come from his loins hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later is for there to be the resurrection. For David to be made alive. And for Jesus to be made alive. And obviously he is pressing the claim here also that he is the Messiah. In the same way that Moses calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, because of the resurrection, that is why David can call Jesus Christ his Lord, even though he's his son. And David will be dead by the time Jesus comes into the world. Because there is resurrection. Jesus is the Lord of David. Just like God the Father is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he's pressing his messianic claim, pressing the understanding that he will be on the heavenly throne. And then he closes his statement here by blasting again the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. These Pharisees, verse 46, you know these ones that said, Well said, when I confounded the Sadducees, these ones who waver from being on my side and inviting me to their lunches and their power meetings, these ones who waver between that and trying to kill me because I'm a threat to their power, you beware of them. Don't think that they're on my side because they sided with me against the Sadducees verbally. You know, they like to walk around in flowing robes and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. What kind of men? What kind of people will be punished the most severely? It's the ones who have not heard the law. It's the ones who have not been struck by the magnitude of their own miserable, sinful condition. It's the ones who think of the law as a means to show God that they deserve to be accepted by Him and to show everybody else that they have a great understanding of the law and, oh, if you would just be like me, you could be initiated into this group of those who have it all together and you are the ones that God accepts, they would say. The rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. No doubt very visibly, right? Making sure that everybody knew the great amount of money that they were giving into the temple treasury as opposed to what? You know what Jesus is saying here is those people will not 
partake in the resurrection of the dead. You self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees, why don't you consider what your relationship is to me? Why don't you consider why I came into the world? I came into the world to reverse the curse of fallen humanity which you and everyone else in the fallen human race has caused. Why don't you find yourself to be like chapter 21 verse 2 that poor widow who's putting in two very small copper coins so humbled by her own unworthiness that even the little that she has you know this is the fruit of her true faith her true faith that understands that she's not just poor outwardly but she's poor inwardly and that she doesn't deserve any blessing of God and it's her humble privilege to even have the ability to come into the temple and to worship him The fruit of her true faith, displayed here by what? Out of her very poverty, giving in most all of what she has to live on. Why don't you look at yourself like that poor lady? Because that's who you are spiritually, Jesus says. And that's the question put to us. Jesus is in absolute control and he is going to die when he decides to die. Nothing will distract him and he is going to die because we are poor, miserable sinners who are in desperate need of his mercy. And let us be sure that we see ourselves as the poor, rebellious souls that we are and cry out to him thanking Him for going to the cross for us and enjoying in the last day the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is our God and He will raise us. And to that all God's people said, Amen.